Some of you at one time with a passion, with a fervency, with a habitual way of life, you spoke to people about the Lord Jesus. They couldn't shut you up. But now your lips have grown flabby. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have come to the point in chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul warns the Jews that might be reading his letter that just because they have obeyed God's command to them and have been circumcised, this is no guarantee that they are saved and going to spend eternity with him. We pick up in verse 25 where Paul does not discount the value of circumcision, but he indicates that to have violated God's laws is, in essence, to be uncircumcised. Like circumcision, you can go through the outward without any inward reality. Let me clarify, on my left hand, this ring finger, I have a wedding band. I put it on 32 years ago this month. And it is a symbol that I've committed my life to one woman until Jesus comes back or until death separates us. But this symbol is only as good as my trust. And raw as it may sound, there is many a person in bed with someone to whom they are not married with their wedding band on. So what does the band mean to the person who's cheating? Nothing. What good is it? It's just a piece of tarnished metal with no faith or trust to back it up. You see, what the wedding band is to the Christian or should be to the Christian, circumcision needed to be to the Jew. The Jew thought, I'm circumcised. God will accept me as being righteous. And Paul is saying, don't count on it. God doesn't look at circumcision of the body if you haven't been circumcised in the heart. God is saying, I don't look just at a, a ring on your finger. I look for an inward reality. So I don't want you to miss the significance of what Paul is saying to the Jewish people of his day. He is not saying that circumcision was worthless. It was something that God had commanded to the Jewish people. But he is saying that it is absolutely meaningless if it doesn't reflect an inward heart reality. So he goes on, follow along, verse 26, if you have ears to hear. And so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, showing therefore that he has new life in Jesus Christ, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Yes, it will. That is, if a Gentile, whom the Jews called uncircumcised dogs, if a Gentile who's never been circumcised lives a godly life because he's been born again, then that is of great significance in the eyes of God. Why? Because, again, a physical symbol without an inward reality is meaningless. What was better, to have the symbol with no inward reality or not to have the symbol and have the inward reality, the latter. And you know that because you see it all the way through Scripture. Do you remember on that occasion in 1 Corinthians 15 when Samuel comes and he has an encounter with Saul? Uh, God had told King Saul to go in and to wipe out those heinous, evil, idolatrous, child-sacrificing Amalekites. And we find a classic example of external obedience without inward reality. 
And so God said in 1 Samuel 15, Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death. He said, put them all to death. Even the oxen and the sheep and the camels and the donkeys, everything. Well, if you remember, Samuel goes to sleep. And in the midst of a sound sleep, God wakes him up. And God appears to Samuel in a vision. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And so the next day, Samuel goes to see King Saul. And Saul says, good morning, brother Samuel. Blessed are you, O the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel says, oh, really? Have you fully obeyed? What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? So Saul comes up with a real spiritual excuse. He said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh, to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so Samuel responds to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, before we point the finger at Saul, we need to point the finger at ourselves. People say, I've never watched porn. I've never looked at X-rated movies. And God says, but you watch movies that are filled with violence and sex and things that are deplorable to me that my son would never sit down and watch with you. We say, oh God, I, I take care of my children. You know, after all, I bring them to church and I make sure they're in Sunday school. And God says, that's real good. But I want my word to first be in your heart. So as you walk in the way, as you rise up, as you lay down, you can teach your children in the everyday moments of life. Oh God, I, I've read my Bible and I prayed to you this morning and God says, wonderful, but I first want you to go fix it with your brother and then come and worship me. You see, half-hearted, lukewarm obedience displeases God. Throughout the word of God, partial obedience is disobedience to God. So has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings as in sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So God never intended faith and obedience to be replaced with just some symbol, some ritual like circumcision or baptism or whatever else you can think of. And so these people that Paul is describing here in Romans 2 and verse 26 had come to believe that the mark was enough and it was nothing more than like a tattoo. Suppose I wore some gold cross on my lapel. And I wore it on every shirt and every suit I owned. And I said, this is a sign of my covenant to my family. I, I wear this cross as a symbol that I have a deep loving commitment to my wife and to my children. And every time you see me, you see me with this cross, I'm like, man, he's a, he's a religious guy. He must really be committed to, to his family. And then you see me out in the parking lot and I'm just chewing out my wife and berating my children and you come up to me and say, hey, that, that's not a very loving thing to do. Hey, pal, don't you see this cross on my lapel? I wear this cross. But I heard what you said to your family. Hey, who cares? Forget my family. Forget my kids. I'm wearing this cross. 
You see, that's where these Jewish people were. Forget the law. Forget a heart of love for God. Man, I've been circumcised. I'm a member of the covenant. God has loved me eternally because of this outward ritual. And so God wants to make it very clear through his apostle that external religion cannot replace righteous living. Secondly and quickly, external religion cannot protect against eternal accountability. External religion cannot protect against eternal accountability. Follow his argument as he closes in verse 27. For he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law in circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Implied answer to the rhetorical question, yes, he will. A saved, transformed, born-again, cleansed Gentile doesn't need circumcision. And a disobedient, lawless, unsaved Jew with his circumcision will, be, will find it to be useless. God is saying that the Gentile, though uncircumcised but saved, is more pleasing to him so much so that he can judge the Jew, though he be circumcised, but he's not been regenerated by the Spirit. So he sums up his argument in verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. By the way, he's not denying that they are nationally, ethically Jewish people. I heard a sermon once how everybody can become a Jew. They missed the whole point. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, meaning a true Jew, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There you have the gut of the Bible's teaching on circumcision. The Jews were circumcised on the outside and not the inside. And so God was more pleased with the Gentiles who had not been circumcised on the outside, but had been on the inside. Again, it's an external symbol that is to depict a reality. Dr. Harry Ironside, a great Bible teacher in the first half of the 20th century, once the pastor of Moody Church, when he would go on vacation, he usually preached, but occasionally he'd be on vacation. And being the Lord's Day, he'd say, I'd always go to church, I'd go to Sunday school, and, and then I would, I would go to worship. And he was in a Sunday school class, and the teacher of the class that he was sitting in said to the group, how is it that people in the Old Testament were saved? And one man raised his hands, he said, by obeying the law. And the teacher said, that's right. And Dr. Ironside said, my Bible says, by the works of the law shall no flesh, no person be justified. Teacher, a little bit embarrassed, he said, well, does somebody else have a thought? Does somebody else have an idea? And another man raised his hand, he said, well, they're saved by making an animal sacrifice. He said, yes, that's right. And Dr. Ironside interrupted again. He says, my Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Well, by this time, realizing he was unprepared and probably the visitor knew a whole lot more, he said, well, what do you think? He said, people were saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved under the New Testament. They were saved by faith in Messiah. They were looking forward to the Savior who would come as we look back. You know, you can take verses 28 and 29 and just substitute two words and make modern application follow. For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, 
nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And baptism is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not for men, but from God. Listen, you read Romans 1 and 2 and you can't find any place to hide. Here in this section, the doctrinal section where he covers three major points, condemnation, justification, and and sanctification, as he deals with the doctrine of condemnation, showing the universal need for the gospel, whether it's the idol-worshiping pagan in chapter 1, whether it's the moralist in the first half of chapter 2, whether it's the religionist Jew in the second half of chapter 2, the fact is, is that they are lost and in need of a Savior. Now, I've been trying to highlight just some of the teachings on circumcision because I want us to get a handle on what Paul is saying. Now, let me just say parenthetically, if I wanted to preach the highlights of Romans or the highlights of the Bible, I wouldn't preach this passage this morning. And the tendency and the temptation for a lot of preachers is just to preach those passages that are exciting and that are interesting as they think of it that will create a barn burner because they don't want to be boring. And quite frankly, those texts of Scripture are very easier, far more easier to preach than to deal with the kind of things that we're dealing with today. But that's not my style. I'm committed to preaching the whole counsel of Scripture. I'm not committed just to giving you, you know, lollipops and and cotton candy. I want to give you some broccoli and some spinach and the the whole counsel of Scripture or you're not going to grow up in Christ. And this is just as inspired as any other text in Scripture. So don't miss the timeless lessons. Let me make three applications as we close today. First of all, I learned from our passage this morning that it's possible you can think that you are right with God by the things that you say. Romans 2 teaches me, you can think that you are right with God by the things that you say. That is, with a proper inward confession. That's the first half of the chapter. The moralist feels like he is just fine with God because of the kinds of things that he pontificates on. The judgments he makes about morality. It is very possible for a person to make sound and accurate judgments about morality. Why? Because he's made in the image of God. And even fallen man, James 3 verse 9 teaches, retains the image of God in his fallen state. And so we saw the argument. Look again at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Because he says it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For he argues when Gentiles who do not have the law, they have no written Bible, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves. And so he mentions here Gentiles, hardcore pagans, who have never heard the Bible read or taught. They do the things of the law. Why? Because they are a law to themselves. That is, God has made them in His image, in His likeness, and He has written His law into their hearts. So these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so? Verse 15. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. 
God wrote the requirements of his law into their hearts. That's why innately we know the difference between what's right, what's wrong, what's just, what's unjust, what's fair, what's unfair. Why? Because God wrote his law into our hearts and his law is a reflection of his character. Now it is true as we discussed and we covered this passage that a person's conscience can become callous, seared, and dead. And it is true, as Jeremiah 31 teaches under the new covenant, because of the blood of Christ, that God reactivates the conscience in a new, fresh way, writes the law of God into our hearts. But Gentiles who have never seen a Bible show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience saying, that a boy, go for it, or their consciences accuse them. And that's why they can make proper judgments and pontificate. And they think by those judgments because they can say what is right, that they are right. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. Because as verse 13 articulates, it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And again, when we study that, he's not teaching salvation by works. He's not teaching faith plus works saves. But if you have a saving faith, it will work as James teaches. Your life will be changed. You'll be a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so now in the second half of the chapter, he makes a second application. It's quite possible to think you're right with God by the things that you say when he deals with the religionist, with the Jew. It's quite possible you think you are right with God by the things that you do. It's possible to have a proper outward confession. Outwardly, the Jew was circumcised, and that was the right thing to do. But his heart was a million miles away from God. And people are no different today. They're jumping through all the spiritual hoops. But there's no inward reality. Jesus said you must be born again. The inward reality needs to march the outward reality. And the only way that can happen is through a second birth. You can say and do all the things you want to do, but unless you've been born again, it is meaningless. Let me make a third application because I know that I'm speaking to hundreds of people in these two services this morning who know Christ as their Savior. But if you know Him, there's to be an, on, an ongoing, and I'm underscoring the word ongoing, there's to be an ongoing match between inward reality and outward confession. That is between what you say and what you do. Remember, Paul is not writing to lost people, telling them how to get saved. He's writing to save people. Romans 1.7, to those who are saints called by God. And so let's apply this to us because it's very easy to go through all the motions without any heart reality. Just as important to being born again, it is equally important to continually in an ongoing way to be filled with the Spirit. Now, when you get saved, the moment you're saved, you are baptized with the Spirit. We have all been baptized by one Spirit, Paul says. Having heard the message of truth, having believed it, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 says. And Ephesians 4.30 says you're sealed unto the day of redemption. He comes to live in you and the Spirit will never forsake you. He is God's earnest, God's down payment, God's deposit that what He began, He will complete. But while He may be resident in your life, it doesn't necessarily mean that He's present in your life. 
And so as you read about uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears and uncircumcised lips, there's a two-edged sword in Scripture. Listen, don't wander. There's a two-edged sword in Scripture. Very often those terms are used to express lost people, but not always. It's very similar to what we discussed last week. I read to you Revelation 3.1 when Jesus describes the church at Laodicea. He said, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. They looked alive, but they were dead. Now, he's not talking about some liberal apostate church that denied Christ. He's using in this context the description to describe saved people. And you've been in churches like that. People who've been born again, but it's just a dead church. Just dead. In the same way, Moses describes himself in Exodus 12 with uncircumcised lips, though he is a saved person. And so when the term uncircumcised is used metaphorically, it can be applied most often to a lost people, but sometimes to a saved person. And so to, to, to use Moses' terms to, for you to this morning to have an un, uncircumcised lips or to be a person who no longer speaks with boldness. Some of you at one time with a passion, with a fervency, with a habitual way of life, you spoke to people about the Lord Jesus. They couldn't shut you up. But now your lips have grown flabby. Some of you have uncircumcised ears. You're no longer walking in the Spirit. And sometimes, again, that's used of unbelievers in Acts 7, but in the book of Jeremiah, it's used of God's people. Uncircumcised ears. People who have trouble hearing a sermon for an hour. I'm not here to give you a sermonette. I'm trying to weed out the people who are not serious. I want you to learn the word of God. But do you know why some people are not here this morning? Because they have uncircumcised ears. In the words of the writer of the Hebrews, they have become dull of hearing. He says it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He said there's some things I want to be able to share with you about the high priest Melchizedek, who is a picture of the Lord Jesus, but I can't do it. Not because it's impossible to understand, not because I'm a poor teacher, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It's because they were poor listeners, dull of hearing. They had uncircumcised ears. The word dull means thick, slow, sluggish. It's two Greek words put together, literally meaning no push. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used throughout Proverbs to, de to describe the sluggard, the person who refuses to tackle hard work. You see, the problem with the writer of the Hebrews is not that he was a dull preacher. But they were dull hearers. We, we, we speak too often about dull preachers, and that's not the problem most of the time. When a man of God opens the Word of God and the Spirit of God week after week after week, and they say, I can't stand what you say. I don't want to hear it anymore. The problem is not with the man of God. It's with the listener. They have become dull of hearing. They have uncircumcised ears. 
Do you have an uncircumcised heart this morning because you're lost and you're looking to something other than Jesus Christ? Then you need to be born again. Are you uncircumcised of heart because you're a moralist or a religionist? Or are you uncircumcised of heart and that you've been saved, but your, your heart, your ears, your, your lips have grown flabby and you need to be refreshed and renewed in the fullness of the Spirit? Now, our Father, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of the Spirit. Even this text that is difficult to preach, but there are lessons here for your people, for each one of us, myself included. I pray today, Father, for someone who does not have the assurance that if Jesus Christ were to come today, or if they suddenly died, that heaven is their home. They'd like to think it would be, they hope it is, but they don't know. And your word says they don't know because they've never trusted in the sufficiency of what Jesus did, that he paid their debt, not halfway, not most of the way, but all the way. That he dealt with every vestige and blot of sin. And in simple faith, they need to believe your promise and yield to Jesus this morning as Lord. Would you do that if you've never done that? If you haven't done it, if you're not sure of salvation, you've not believed what God said, that whoever will call on his son will be saved. And God can promise you that because Jesus paid it all. And if you don't believe it, it's because you're either ignorant, you don't know what God said, but I hope I've lifted the ignorance. Or you don't believe it because you don't think God will do what he said, that he's a liar. Or God can't do what he said, that he's weak. He is not weak. He's not a liar. He keeps his promises, every one of them. And he is able to do that which he has promised. And so without faith, without taking God at his word, you will never please him. Would you in simple childlike faith say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now I'm speaking to hundreds who have already made that decision. But you don't have a heart to hear the Word of God like you once did. You're looking at your watch and you can't wait to get out. And the Lord's Day is not the Lord's Day all day to you. And your heart has become indifferent. And you can't hear with your ears and you can't speak with your lips. Because though the Spirit is resonating in you, He is no longer filling you. And you need to repent. And receive God's promise that when you confess your sins, say what God says about sin, He will be faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse you. Ask Him to do that today. The Spirit of God will not fill a dirty vessel. Ask Him to cleanse you. True confession involves genuine repentance. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 2 entitled, Religion That Will Take You to Hell, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and download program ROM10. You can also download and listen to it from our Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, which is found at the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. We hope these studies from the Book of Romans are building up your ability to confidently share the truth of Christ 
with a world that's becoming increasingly ignorant of the gospel. We need your help in continuing our mission of sharing this truth over the airwaves and through the internet. If you can help, please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or go online at searchthescriptures.org and make a generous tax-deductible contribution. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at the depravity of man. Join us then as we search the scriptures.